And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good. The bad. And the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Ryan Oliver. And I'm Chris Thomas. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty well, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing not too bad. I'm a little tired, but otherwise I'm doing all right. And I apologize to our listeners if my voice sounds a little uh, a tinny. We'll do what we can in post-production. Um, I guess a little peek behind the curtain. I usually record in my garage. Um, but, you know, it's now that time. And it's spring in Washington, which means the weather at any given moment could be between 25 degrees and 75 degrees uh, and <laughs> anywhere in between. Um, but today just happens to be a little cold, so the furnace keeps kicking on. So uh, I'm in, which you've probably little, heard featured in a previous episode as well. Or, or you hear my audio quality change, and you're like, mm. "What happened to his microphone? Nothing. It's just that the the furnace kicked on, <laughs> and it, it is what it is." Um, so now I'm in the little uh, little closet under the stairs that my wife uses in the office. It's kind of like uh, Harry Potter's uh, yeah. uh, bedroom at <laughs> the Dursleys. So, um, but anyway. Let's not enough about that. Let's move on to today's topic, uh, which you teased the end of our last episode, and and I'm pretty excited to talk about it. These are auteur vampire films. Um, it just happened to be a coincidence that we did this. Uh, you're listening to this on Friday, April 14th, and today the movie Renfield is being released uh, with Nicolas Cage as Dracula and uh, Nicholas Holt as his long-suffering assistant. Um, so looking forward to that, but, uh, I'll kick it over to you to introduce the picks and explain a little bit of why you chose this category. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so a hundred percent, I chose it because, uh, George Romero's Martin just had a 4k release from second sight pictures. Uh, it's a movie that I saw, uh, several years ago, um, and uh, adored. Um, so then once I heard that second sight was putting this out, I, immediately got excited i remember i texted you and i was like martin's coming to fucking 4k and then it was like a two and a half year plus adventure from the announcement to the actual Been a long release. journey oh, yes. dude, like i've made many a meme that i've shared with you about waiting for the martin release and it's finally here and so i i wanted to build an episode around it in order to talk about it and it just so happens that you know, George Romero being a, a horror legend, there are other horror legends who had their own one-off entry into the vampire genre. So I thought it would be interesting to, you know, when whenever you talk about you know, auteurs, um, which is, I guess, even a, a contentious sort of category where people can't really agree on auteurship and, and what makes an auteur and what is an auteur. So... I'm using the frame a little loosely, unless that's something that we wanted to sort of explain to the audience of like what an auteur is or our our understanding of what an auteur is. I mean, I I would like to 
maybe assume that our audience does like know or understand that I sure. just in, in fear of feeling like we're talking down or anything like that. But yeah. it just, but I do want to be inclusive. So in case you don't know, like an auteur theory is like that the director is the author of the film. And so there's certain uh, different hallmarks of the filmmaker that are inherent in, in the movie. You know, I think we made a joke, um, I think we made a joke on our Patreon, which you should subscribe to. So this is the only yeah. thing I'm going to sort of leak from it, where, like, you made a, a reference to the trunk shot, which, like, you know, that's the thing in Quentin Tarantino's movies that he has that. Um, or the, um, um, I'm trying to think of another example, but, like, they just, like, auteur stamps. And so the three filmmakers we're looking at today, I mean, I think that they they certainly have what they're about um, as, as filmmakers. I can't think of a necessarily a visual motif that that like is like in every single one and maybe you can um i'm For sure at least can. one of them i can yeah, yeah that's actually that's fair yeah i know i think i know what you're talking about but um but like thematically there's mm-hmm. a they're like these these filmmakers are about a certain thing and they really do it well and i think all three of these movies for you know better or worse or wherever they fall on the spectrum i think are very true to what each of these filmmakers are about um so yeah i think that's a that's a good that's a good way to put it and I think as we go through and we mention each of them, we will we will talk about what, at least in my opinion, I, I'm sure that you'll be able to weigh in as, as well, about what sets these filmmakers apart and what could possibly be put into you know, a category of what makes them an auteur. Um, <laughs> but uh, with that, we may as well just get underway. So for the good pick, I've already mentioned it up top. We're going to be talking about Martin from 1976, directed by George A. Romero. Um, the Bad is uh, from 1998 John Carpenter's Vampires directed by John Carpenter uh, as much as that pains me I love him uh, didn't love the movie uh, and then the what this time around which might be a contentious pick I know that there are vampires apologists but this time around we're putting Vampire in Brooklyn from 1995 directed by Wes Craven in the what category um, I will say up top these could be interchangeable, I guess. I just found Vampire in Brooklyn more interesting as a film than it did Vampires. Sure, and I think, like, for me personally, we'll get into it, but I, I, I wouldn't qualify this as an Oops All Bangers episode, but none of these movies were, like, horrible to sit through, even no. bad, like, by any stretch. So I think that makes it interesting. Um, and I think also, not only are we contextualizing these movies probably against one another, we're also contextualizing them within the body of work of each respective filmmaker. So there's a lot of lines being drawn here. So I think, um, I have no disagreement with your picks. I think if you're, if you're considering the intersection of those two things, I think they're exactly where I would probably put them if I were shuffling them. So for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, that's a very good point. Um, I, we may as well just jump right into uh, that. People will sort of get the gist of what we're talking about when we start talking about George A. Romero and his creation of the movie Martin. My name is Martin. I'm 84 years old. People think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am. I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. It's not easy living the way I do. I have to be careful all the time. I'm pretty good at it. I think as I get older, I get better. I haven't been caught yet. Martin, another kind of terror. 
Martin, played by John Amplis, is a seemingly mild-mannered, if a bit awkward, young man. However, when he returns home to live with his estranged cousin in Philadelphia, we quickly learn he has a thirst for blood that must be satisfied, and Martin may not be exactly who he seems. Um, Ryan, this was a first-time watch for you. You had heard me gush about it before, so I hope that that didn't sort of taint your view of the movie going into it. I, I'm curious to know your, your initial thoughts. No, I wouldn't say it tainted it, but yes, you're right. You, you've told me about many years about watching Martin, but it's largely been inaccessible. It's been a really difficult mm-hmm. movie to find, and I'm, I'm sure you probably have a little bit of context uh, for that. But thankfully, thanks thanks to the, the outstanding UK uh, boutique label, Second Sight, uh, who previously did the 4K release of Dawn of the Dead, oh, all God, of the cuts gorgeous. of Dawn of the Dead, which is a phenomenal box set. Um like, but that was a day one purchase, like oh, yeah. 100%. It was it was worth it. Uh, they also put out, they put out some Region A Blu-rays, like Extro, uh, which is another one. And they have a 4K of The Hitcher coming out soon, which is also a long, been on crummy, uh, like, transfer movie. So oh, even the one that's on HBO Max, or was on HBO Max, is, like, letterboxed, like, really bad quality. Like, it's like an old DVD rip. Yeah, well, and that's I have the old DVD because I'm holding on to it for dear life. Which you could go back. We <laughs> yeah. talked about the Hitcher on a previous episode. Yes, um, it's like that thing where, like, because it's an older DVD and it doesn't fill a full 16 by 9 screen, so it's like letterboxed and it's pillar boxed. Mm-hmm. So it's just a small little like thing into it. So um, the Hitcher is coming later this year, but uh, we are not advertiser sponsored by Second Sight in any way. They're just a cool label, and uh, we highly recommend it. But as far as Martin is concerned, I don't feel you overhyped it, and it was sort of just always on my mind. And when it came, you know, finally came out to order it, I think we were both actually in the same room. We were at a work trip, and we were both at the airport, and it was mm-hmm. like the, the pre-sale had dropped. And it was like a weird thing where, like, I went to order it directly from Second Sight, and then they were like, oh, we're only shipping in the U.K., and so they like refunded it and they're like, you got to go through Diabolic DVD, our, our, you know, our U.S. distributor uh, to, to do it. So it was like a roundabout way, but it, but it happened. Um, I, I loved this movie. Um, it is probably one of the most unique vampire movies that I have ever seen, I think, because and we'll get into it. And, you know, I know we always do spoilers for older movies, but because it's largely been inaccessible we'll we'll get there when we get there and we'll Mm -hmm. give you plenty of warning but i think that the strength of this movie lies in its ambiguity i think because um because the it's so raw and it's so like it's so romero to do the unromanticized antithesis of a vampire movie because like when Mm -hmm. you think of a vampire movie what do you think of you think of like romanticism and you think of like alluring and you think of this like you know, mysterious and there's something like sexy to like mm-hmm. vampires, which is why it's been the, like of probably the monster movies subgenres. It's been the subject of many like erotic, like retellings, you know, or, or even when they're like, monstrous, they're still sophisticated. Like 1922's yeah. Nosferatu, like Nosferatu mm-hmm. is a scary fucking thing to look at, but he's not, uh, he's not like a beast. He's no, or Dracula, even Dracula, of course, you yeah. know, um, and so it's so like Romero to take that concept and we're like, what if it's grungy? What if it's like, uh, what if it's completely unsexy? What if they were like, um, like basically an incel, mm-hmm. um, to, to a certain extent. Um, and we take everything that's sort of like glamorized about a vampire movie and we strip it down, um, to basically, I, I think I, I compared this movie more to something like angst. 
Um, yes. You know, it's. I don't think it's as upsetting as a movie like Angst by any stretch because that movie's firmly plants you in the perspective of somebody who clearly is like psychotic and you sort of have to a good bad what near you well absolutely it's a it's a it's an amazing but tough watch that Mm -hmm. movie um but it firmly plants you in the head of somebody you know is psychotic and you have to live in that headspace for the 85 minutes that that movie runs and martin is like completely ambiguous to the point where you're like you're like i a case could be made either way of whether or not this guy is a vampire. And I don't think anyone could be proven wrong, but like it builds, it just builds and builds. And to this, like just, just, uh, devolving into like, uh, both depravity and just, and bleak. The ending of this movie is like fucking bleak. Like mm. I was sort I, I sorry, I've gone on way too long. I oh, you was, Go. but I was blown away. I was blown away by this movie. Like you, you have amped it up, and I was like, I like could not have expected how much I I loved it. Like I, I really do think it's it stands high in Romero's filmography. I think you know next to Night and Dawn of the Dead, which are his most revered works, and I think it's it's right in there with those movies for sure. Um, and I'm glad that it's now much more accessible than it's ever been um, because people should 100 percent watch it. But I I want to know more about your thoughts because I know you watched it once before on it's probably not super great transfer uh wherever you ended up watching it and then now watching the 4k so i'm curious like what your thoughts were prior and what your thoughts are after this rewatch oh i mean i think so i I think the fact that you were still able to love the movie despite the fact because i mean i know for me if somebody tells me up top like oh man this movie's fantastic you're gonna love it they're almost doing me a disservice because if I go into it and I like it, and I don't love it. I'm disappointed. And I probably would have been better off not knowing anything about the movie and just enjoying it for what it is. And so it can almost be a spoiler in that way. And I think the fact that me sort of hyping up the movie and being like, it's great. I mean, I, I when you said that it's up there in the echelon of like night and day and dawn um, amongst George's other works, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I think even more than either any of those three movies, maybe more in line with Night of the Living Dead, where you go into the movie having an expectation of what it is, and it's so different than what you would think it is on paper that there's so much more to absorb and love about what is presented to you that you kind of forget about what your idea of the movie was before because you're just intoxicated by what you're being presented. And I think he did the same thing with Night of the Living Dead, where if on paper someone is just like, you know, the dead rise, especially, you know, back in the 60s when this came out and people were like, what in the fuck is this? And we're blown away by that movie. If it was on paper, you know, the dead rise to eat people's flesh and some people hide out in a, a, a house out in a, a field and they have to fight back uh, the, the undead overnight. You're thinking siege movie. You're thinking high action. You're thinking bunch of gore. And that's really not what Night of the Living Dead is. It's it's very understated it's very slow it's very character driven uh and it's a it's amazing and i love it for that and the same thing with martin you have an idea of a vampire movie in your brain and exactly like you said you think romanticism you think um sort of the seduction and and uh, this uh, sexual violence that's associated with vampires and there's elements of that in this movie and it's presented to the audience almost as a way to sort of like 
especially because the way it's edited into the movie it's sort Mm -hmm. of like to give the audience a glimpse of this is what you're expecting or maybe wanting and that's not what you're going to get we're going to do this instead and this instead is like harrowing and like violent and dark and it it just gives you these heebie-jeebies and it's sadly prophetic in a way as well because this movie came out the year before um, the Vampire of Sacramento, uh, Richard Chase, uh, d- committed his crimes and and was caught. And he very much was like Martin in that he was a home invader and would kill the people in their home because he wanted to drink their blood because he was mentally ill and he thought he didn't have enough blood in his body. I swear I'm not going to dogleg this into a true crime podcast. Um, <laughs> but I just found that that like the the stuff that Martin is doing in this movie is very very. Uh, like legitimately terrifying, like horrifying, yes. and related to stuff that hadn't even really happened yet, and was in like the American lexicon. Um, so I like that's kind of mind-boggling to me. But I think one of the things I wanted to talk about is early on in the movie, we haven't really quite gotten a sense of who martin is or what he is when he's taking the train back home to philadelphia to move in with his cousin his elderly cousin which i I wanted to point that out that it's his cousin but he's much older than he is um when he gets on the train and he sees that young woman and sort of zeroes in on her and then we see him like get into his cabin and basically pull out a kill kit and he mm-hmm. has like razor blades and he pulls out uh, a hypodermic Syringe. needle yeah, yeah. And, and, and we're just like He's planning on doing something very dark, very bad, uh, and and we're you know front row center about to see it happen. But there's a moment where he knows where her cabin is, and he goes to the door. He's got the syringe in his teeth, and he's ready to bust in. And we see him break in, and the film switches to black and white very quickly. And in that black and white, the woman is just sitting on the bed. And like looks up at him, and it's it's turns sort of into a, a silent film, which would harken back to something like Nosferatu or or films of that era, which is like it's going to be romanticized. It's soft soft light. Uh, uh, it's stylized in this way, and here now he's become the vampire. And very quickly we get a cut back to color and a cut back to reality, and we realize that she's not in the cabin. Um, he hides behind the door as she comes out of the bathroom. We hear the toilet flush. I think she may be brushing her teeth. She has like a, a face mask on. It's absolutely the opposite of romanticized, uh, stylized. It's, it's like some lady just got done taking a dump and then now she's about to get ready to go to bed and she's flossing and stuff like that. Nothing about this is stylized or sexual. And just like nothing about this is romanticized when she turns and sees Martin, which is... I can't even imagine the the horror of being in a cramped space, turning around and seeing a strange man in the room with you with a syringe in his mouth. Um, he attacks her and injects her, and they have a fight. And he's telling her like, "I'm not going to hurt you. You're just going to go to sleep." And and it's it's like really uncomfortable, but but also uh, intimate in in the way that the violence is taking place. It's all shot very close. Um, they're flailing in the frame and fighting. And when she finally does fall asleep, we see Martin undress, and then he pulls a razor blade out and slashes her wrist open to drink her blood. And like we, now we get a full sense of like, holy shit, this is who 
Martin oh, really yeah. is. All down the arm too. Like like he does he does it the way that like and you know that they say you're supposed to do it, which it's like like, yeah. like it's you know I I, I want to just elaborate a bit too on like your or or add to your sort of subverting the expectation of like what you expect because you have this idea in your head of what the movie could be and it completely like subverts them like even from the cover of the movie let alone what you are carrying with a vampire movie it's like the cover of the movie it's like martin is written in blood and there's a reflection of vampire teeth into the razor blade and you're like oh like you know what is this movie like it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of like Like, it really leaves it up to the imagination of, like, what the movie could be. And immediately, you're like, I don't know what I thought this movie could be, but it wasn't this. Uh, And, like, you know, not in a bad way, but just you're like, I did not expect this whatsoever. No, and I I think that's what makes it so affecting and impactful because i mean it's not like there hadn't been vampire movies or vampire stories up until this point mm-hmm. and the fact that even like this early on that george is already subverting it so i'm even for some context about the making of this movie as well is is pretty famous that night of the living dead um was released without a copyright uh and so then of course immediately people just took it and started showing it on tv and really nobody got paid at all for the creation of Night of the Living Dead. Of course, George Romero's name got out there. Uh, him and, and his crew and, and uh, folks who were just industrial filmmakers uh, around the Pennsylvania, uh, mainly Philadelphia area. Um, and because of that, he was able to get more work off of the back of that, but they made a feature film and didn't get any money off of it because they didn't have a copyright. So that's a bummer. And George basically owed all of his backers, all of his producers, money um, that, that he'd gotten to finance the film and then he wasn't able to pay them back. So um, he you know, he went and did uh, The Amusement Park, which recently released in 2021, which is a movie in 1973. It's an industrial film. Um, yep. that he did also, The Crazies as well. Sorry, The I Crazies. No, no, yep. no, that's helpful. Thank you. I forgot about The Crazies. Yeah, um, there's that stretch, and uh, I think it's out of print now, but Arrow Video had put out that... Uh, like between night and dawn box mm-hmm. sets um, that had like the crazies. There's always vanilla and season of the witch were mm-hmm. like the three movies. And then in the amusement park, which I cut you off. What, what were you going to say about? Well, that one was like park. a lost picture. Um, right. It's like, it, that's why it didn't release until 2021 through shutter. Um, but the star of that movie is uh, Lincoln Maisel who plays Kuda in Martin, his elderly cousin. So oh, yeah. it's, it's cool yep. to see him. Like I'd seen this before I saw amusement park and then now rewatching it, I go, Oh shit. I hadn't even made the connection that you're, you're the same guy. But, um, this basically, so Richard Rubenstein was the, the, uh, co-producer and co-creator of night of the living dead. They very famously had a bit of a falling out, uh, later on in their career where they sort of did a splitting of the, uh, the dead title, um, where I, I can't remember exactly what the uh, what the split was, but one of them could use like night of or something or or dawn of, and then the other person had like exclusive rights to the use of the word dead. I would need to look it up again, but they they had I a bit got of. Got to imagine Romero held the rights to dead because he did like Land of the Dead and right. like he he did like a couple more in like the uh, like the early to mid aughts, I think. But then, like, Richard Rubenstein produced uh, um, Return of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Ah, I don't know. So I don't know exactly what the split is. I know that there was, like, a bit of a fight. But one of the things that came out of that is that Richard Rubenstein, uh, he um, 
reserved or, or he held on to the distribution rights for uh, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Martin were the three movies that he had like pretty tight to his chest and has for a very long time held pretty tight to his chest, which is why it's only really in the last couple of years that Second Sight Pictures has re-released Dawn of the Dead and Martin, and then, of course, Criterion released Night of the Living Dead. Uh, yeah. I think three years ago, four years ago. Which also, um, like you said, doesn't have a copyright. So they, they're welcome to do it. Night of the Living Dead has been on every, like, 50 great horror films that, like, Mill Creek has put out or something. It always has Night of the Living Dead because they can. They legally can. And because it should be. Because it's amazing. <laughs> well, it should be, but also, like... But, like, you look at the movies and you look at, like, the choices and it's, like... this Because I used to... Maybe I still have that 50 horror box set where, like, it has Nosferatu because it's public domain. And it's got Night of the Living Dead, it doesn't have a copyright, also public mm-hmm. domain. And then you look at the rest, and it's just sort of like, <laughs> like, you yeah. know, they're fun things, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, not, it's like, here's these giants, and then everything else. So, mm-hmm. like, it's it's kind of funny, always looking at that, being like, okay, well, here's two, like, Stone Cold Masterpieces, and then a bunch of other shit. <laughs> bunch of dog shit. <laughs> um. But to get more into uh, Martin and what happens within the story of Martin, so we immediately see that Martin is a bloodthirsty uh, killer, but mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of a he's sort of a wiener, um, you oh, know, like you said, a, a bit of an yeah. incel uh, kind of thing. He's very quiet, very, uh, I mean, very archetypal for this kind of serial murderer, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he moves to Philadelphia is when we get a bit of a mystery into the, the nature of Martin is when he meets his cousin, who is this elderly man played by Lincoln Maisel. And he like takes him home and he's got garlic hanging on his bedroom door. He's got mirrors hung up. There's crosses all over the place. And he basically straight up tells Martin, I know what you are. You're a Nosferatu. Like you come from a long lineage of family members who are vampires and you're going to live here under my roof. You're going to follow some rules. Uh, if I find out that anybody out there in the streets of Philadelphia has been bled by a vampire, I'm going to kill you. But ultimately, I'm going to kill you anyway. I'm just going to work to save your soul. And then once I've saved your soul, then I'm going to kill you. And it, it sort of opens up like this. We think it's going to go one direction from the way that it's presented in the beginning of like, oh, I thought it was going to be a movie about a vampire, but it's actually about this like killer who does drink blood, but there's nothing supernatural about it to, oh, okay, um, there might be something supernatural about it. He, he says he's a vampire and he has a long lineage of vampires in his blood. Immediately, Martin sort of flips that on his head by taking a bite out of the garlic and grabbing the crucifix and being like, there is no magic. There is no such thing as a vampire. Like the, none of this is what you actually think it is. But then later on, he says that he's 84 years old. He's talking to a radio show host about like being a vampire and living yes. forever, like or living as long as he has. And um, yeah, it, it like you said, it goes back and forth to the point where you're just like, I don't know what I believe. Like, I know this person is psychotic, whether yes. or not he's an actually a vampire and we'll get into a little bit more of that, but you're like, yeah, it, it immediately toys with your expectations. Um, you know, and that, like you said, that black and white shot, mm-hmm. um, that's a visual motif that remains throughout the movie as well, where like he'll, he'll conduct a home invasion or like a, like a, a murder of some kind. 
And like within that, as he's going to either like inject the needle or like go in with the with the blade, mm-hmm. it cuts to something in black and white that he's recalling, um, which is great. I love that stylistic choice because it just further adds murkiness to it where you're like, OK, it's clear that in these scenes, it's much older like times. So like this movie is, you know, 1976, he says it's 84. So it's like this is somewhere in the early 1900s where mm-hmm. it's said, at least that's the illusion. But then you're just like, okay, well, is he making this shit up or is, did he right. actually live this? And, and the movie never gives you a clear answer and it's, it's all the better for it for sure. Um, but it like, it constantly toys with your expectations to the point too, where it's like, it immerses you in like the sort of like harrowing aspects of the home invasion like specifically uh, a scene where he he like talks about how he hasn't fed in a long time or maybe this is or maybe he elaborates more on the reasons after the fact i can't remember the exact order but the gist of it is that he hasn't fed in a while so he's starting to feel woozy and he has to do it again and so there's somebody in the neighborhood like he goes and pretends like to be like a, a mailman or, or milkman, like he's pretending to like deliver something. Or his cousin's uh, a his cousin's a butcher or owns a deli, and so he takes home orders of meat to certain customers. That's houses. what it was. That's what it was. Right? Yeah, I knew there was some reason, and so he was there to be delivering the the, the meat, and um, like has a conversation with the husband, has a conversation with the wife, and he goes later on, um, you know, basically it's insinuated like that the husband's going on like a work business trip. So she's going to be home alone. So he's like, that's mm-hmm. a perfect chance for me to get in there and feed. Um, you know, and then it turns out that woman is having an affair with somebody else. So there's a guy. So he was not anticipating having to try and take out two people, mm-hmm. which leads to like probably one of the best set pieces of the movie where it just, it goes on and on to, to an uncomfortable degree of this sort of like cat and mouse game that he's mm-hmm. doing with this woman and this this man in there and about how like and like the tension sort of set because she's like um uh like you need to one of them says you need to call the police uh i think it's he needs to call the police and she's like well no you like you can't because you're not supposed to be here we're having an affair so right. if there's a statement that has to be made my husband's going to know that we were doing this um and there's like multiple phones in the house and like Martin's like fucking with the phone. And it's just like, it's so tense and disturbing and uncomfortable that it was just like, just like incredible, like incredible, but also sick to my stomach at the same time. <laughs> oh, I, I love the setup of that scene because like we, like Martin is rigged a way to open up her automatic garage door opener. Mm-hmm. So he like sneaks in, she goes out to see like what the sound was, sees the door is open, but he's hiding. So she's like, Oh weird, like a malfunction or whatever shuts it. So we, as the audience are like, Oh fuck, like he's inside. We've already seen him kill a woman once. And so we're expecting it's going to be something similar. And when he opens the door and there's a man there, we, we, as the audience have a realization just as quickly as Martin does, it's just like, oh, okay, she's having an affair. I didn't expect to be that guy here. But then to put yourself in the shoes of that dude where he – when Martin opens the door and he turns around and sees him, he he has a line that's something along the line, lines of like, oh, it's uh, – I'm, I'm sorry, man. It's not what it looks like. And the wife screams, I don't know him. And that is one of the scariest fucking things I can ever imagine because, like, you go from being like, oh, shit, I just got caught by this lady's husband. This is going to be a whole situation. And then she's like, nope, 
that's a stranger that broke into the house and I don't know what he wants. Like, that is a different kind of escalation of the danger that you're in. And then he's immediately injected with some strange fluid that he doesn't know. And then Martin runs out of the room. So, like, that guy's head is is spinning. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, I you... you <laughs> it's it's a weird trick too because it's like you, you uh like it's he makes you empathize with somebody who's doing something that like they they shouldn't be doing either but like mm-hmm. you have so much empathy for that person in that moment because you're just like ah he was just trying to get some tail and now it's like he's been injected with this weird fluid and he's trying to figure out everything that's happening meanwhile like and the camera work too is like as delirious as he is where it's like cutting to different like root like martin's like running around in the house and it's like going to like room to room and it's like so disorienting and it's like extremely well done like i was into the movie for sure up until that point but that's the moment where like i locked into the movie where i was like whoa like yeah this is deeply some deeply well-crafted and and disturbing insidious stuff that you're dealing with here but i also want to point out that like Martin is not um, he's not a Richard Chase character and that he's just mindlessly roving from place to place like you already said he calls into basically like the coast to coast AM local radio show and and, and talks to them about him being a vampire and right. the, they got their uh, well, wow tell us more about the blood you suck like they're playing along into it because right. the music the music goes and they're like hey man like we're getting all kinds of callers in here like yeah, can you stay yeah. on the line can you tell me more about it and he just hangs and up he's describing <laughs> actual murders and it, it yeah. It's very like he's yeah they're they're very much playing into it, but then there are there are other sympathetic characters that are brought into it like another woman that Martin brings uh, meat to who is like a housewife and we never see her husband, and she's very clearly like upset with the relationship that she's in, and she comes on to to Martin and tries to like seduce Martin it's like a Mrs. Robinson situation, and we see like. Martin at no point shows any sort of indication that he ever thinks about killing this woman and drinking her blood, which is another thing about like if um, like his condition that he says that he gets the shakes and he starts feeling woozy if he hasn't fed in in enough days or whatever. Like, is it psychosomatic? Is it like actually a physiological uh, affect that he's feeling like? we don't really get an indication of what's true and what's not. And like you said, like the flashes of black and white, what's imagined and, and you know, what actually happened. But I think with the introduction of this one character who we see, uh, the, the first woman who is actually actively having an affair, um, she ends up being a victim of Martin because she was just a woman that passed by and didn't pay him any mind. But now we have a woman who's, empathizing with martin and showing interest in martin and he is like completely doesn't know how to handle that he like even runs away from her at one point when she tries to like come on to him and seduce him so like martin is a much more layered character than what we're letting on by just describing some of the more violent scenes of him and his vampirism and also he has a connection with um kuda's daughter that lives in the same house like they 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 have a bond and a friendship so we really do get like this big full scope of martin as a character which is is so it's handled so deftly that we're able to see this actual like barbarism that he Mm -hmm. is inflicting on these poor people 
And yet he is an interesting and empathetic character to the point where you're just you're desperately trying to suss out what is going on in Martin's head. Yes, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad. No, I'm glad you brought out both of those those sequences for sure, because that's that's what I, I did want to bring up with, like the housewife character of like there's a lot of like psychosexuality going on mm-hmm. and sort of like the the sort of either. The, like you, you just going with the incel theory, you assume it's sort of like a denial of sex, and that sort of led to this, you know, sort of like violence. It's almost kind of like Bonnie and Clyde in that way, um, where like Clyde's that way, where it's like he's sort of he's like impotent, impotent. Right? Yeah, 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 he's impotent until the bodies start to pile up, and then there's that scene where it's like after they have a big score and like a shootout, then they have like sex out in the woods. Mm. Um, and so it's like there's a little bit of that element to it but there's also the idea that like it's not his it's not how he quote unquote gets his rocks off for lack of a better term because it's like because they do have sex ultimately um and sort of like he he even mentions i don't know if it's in the radio show or like a voiceover where he's just like i've just never like that that that's just never worked for me or that mm-hmm. the sex stuff just never really like connected with me like this the the you know the I, i'm sticking with like the the vampirism for lack of a better term so it's like almost his sort of outlet to um you know to to deal with that like release uh so to speak and so it's like that is fascinating and then you you mentioned the daughter character which is also a great relationship but she's there's another element too because she she is fed up with this idea of the family curse like her her father has like talked about this family curse for like years and years and years and he you know he believes just so wholeheartedly that martin is a vampire oh yeah and so and she just doesn't see it um you know but to she, the point she knows martin is sick like yeah she knows she knows he's unwell but and she empathizes and that sort of reinforces our empathy and then it's like you have the additional layer because you know that her dad is sort of like controlling because he goes to meet her boyfriend who's mm, like they're mm-hmm. gonna go move away and basically tom says, savini yeah tom savini yeah that was great great uh which also tom savini did the effects in the movie mm-hmm. as well as acts sans so. mustache tom savini which it, it threw me off for a second <laughs> uh like i was like wait like it took me a second to be like wait that's tom savini yeah <laughs> but, without the mustache he looks like a completely different person but uh he goes and and tells him basically that about this like family curse and this is a burden and you don't want to like run off with her and but then Tom Savini goes back to tell her exactly what had happened. So of course that pisses her off. Mm-hmm. And so, and she leaves, she's just like, she's like, I'm not sick around here anymore. She tells Martin she's leaving and Martin's, uh, she's like, I won't forget. And she, and he like, basically he's like, I, I think you will. Like everyone tends to forget. Like everyone tends to forget about me. And you're just like, Oh my God. Like I've witnessed you do these horrific, horrific things. I shouldn't empathize, but that's like, you know, but it's like it, it's there, though. Like right. you said, the deft hand to be able to empathize with somebody who's clearly got these issues and have done these horrible things is a really like it. It could have gone so wrong in so many ways, and it it never does. Well, and there is like there is another true crime uh, uh, persona that I could mention here, but I don't want anybody to look him up because he is a piece of shit. But he very much is. He's it it is the incel killer basically like he mm-hmm. very much went and did his crimes and was very public about the fact that I'm I'm doing these because uh, women don't want me and, and I'm I'm such an alpha male but women don't realize it so then I'm like forced to commit these murder and the fact that like Martin can exude uh, uh, characteristics that you might associate with an incel, but then is not like 
crying and peeing his pants over it. Like mm. he literally is a really damaged person. And the, because of that, then you're able to go like, oh, okay, you're not just being a dick and then using that to justify your crimes. You're literally something is fucking very, very wrong and you need professional help. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's really it's heartbreaking. It's in, really in like heartbreaking. several different levels. Which again goes to that initial thesis of the movie toying with your expectations. You're like, I thought I came here for a vampire movie. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't quite that. It's kind of that. Maybe. Sort of. <laughs> like, yeah, you're, it's you're like up to interpretation, it. honestly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, honestly, that's the biggest strength of the movie is really that. Well, I mean, there's many strengths, I guess, as we've articulated. But I think that ambiguity lends it that extra, like, layer, too, where you're just like, okay, like, is this person... Is this something that's been forced upon them in a way that they have to be doing this? Mm. Or are they really actually like deeply, deeply psychologically ill? And it's probably a little column A and a little column B. But the movie, like, again, it, it really subverts your expectations and it changes how you feel about him at any given moment. It's like it's like multiple seasons of a, a TV show. It's like Game of Thrones or or uh, or Succession where like mm. you change how you feel about any one of these characters from like moment to moment because they're so like layered. Um, and it's, and it's like a 90 minute movie or a hundred minute movie, however long it is. And that's, it's impressive. Like it's so impressive. <laughs> well, and if I can spoil the end of the movie, because I do want to mention the end of the movie. Yes, real quick, we, we, but... we have to. So spoilers for the ending. We're going to yeah. probably pivot to vampires and check next the description five and find the time code uh, yeah. for, for when we start the discussion on vampires. But, uh, you had even mentioned the ending. I, I've talked a lot in this discussion. Do you want to talk about the ending and, and your perception of it? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the ending. Um, uh, well, you have the photographic memory, so I don't. Uh, <laughs> you you might have to help me a little bit. I I know the last shot. I know the mm-hmm. final actions, but I'm I'm having a hard time recalling the actions that sort of lead up to the final action to where he he ends up back at his house. Like he's he's on the lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I forget he, he has killed again at this point. I just can't remember who it was. was uh, it, the, it wasn't the housewife though. Was it? No. Or? So he, he killed two homeless guys, That's uh, what it was. in order to, to drink their blood and then was almost found out by the cops. And there was a bit of a foot chase, which ended <gasps> oh, up with yes. an incidental shootout with some gangsters. Um, sorry, that's he, the part. Yes. And then he goes, he goes back home. So this is the part where he goes back home and he's he's like asleep he like he's laying in bed he's like whoo man like thinking in in his head i'm sure like oh man that was crazy like i was almost found out but i i'm i'm back here i'm, I'm laying down i'm i'm home safe um his cousin comes in with a giant ass steak and hammers the shit out of that steak through his chest just mm-hmm. all the way down to it's probably through the bed or at least partially it's through the definitely bed at that through point. the bed. Yeah. It's in there. Um where and he just drills that stake in there until the last breath leaves his body and he's saying, you know, he's saying like he's doing it like ritual like doing like an exorcism almost where it's mm-hmm. like he's living up to what he said he was going to do at the beginning of the movie where I'm going to save I'm saving your soul but you're your body must you're be damned. purged. Yeah. You're damned. Yeah. So you're like, um, and, and that's how it ends with him coughing up blood and 
and it ends there with abruptly. Him, abruptly with him with a massive, massive stake through his chest tight, like into the bed. Which I there's two pieces of context that I also wanted to add there because you did said that <clears throat> he killed someone in addition to those two homeless guys. He goes back to the um, the house of the housewife who he had slept with to see her, not to attack her or anything, but to see her. And he, he finds her in her bathtub and she's slit her wrists. Oh, that's right. Yeah. After the scene where they had had sex, very clearly she regretted it immediately. Like there, there mm-hmm. was something inside of her that she like she was not fulfilled by having sex with Martin, which could be because Martin is a weird gangly vampire man and probably uh he's probably not a very uh uh attentive lover i think you could probably say i um, would assume he's not attentive and i probably assume it didn't last very long just right. based on everything yeah. we know about him so but I'm, th- I'm thinking it's more of a psychological thing for her where she was feeling unfulfilled sexually and romantically and then after having sex with martin was probably a realization of like it's not sex that i was missing it was like intimacy or somebody that wants me loves me and clearly martin doesn't love me uh he's just some kid from the neighborhood and that spiraled out and she ended up committing suicide and so incidentally i think martin is at least partially responsible for the death of this woman because he he pushed her over to that next point and one of the things that he's doing at the end of the movie is there's a bit of a shoot the rodeo situation where there was a uh, a parade going through the neighborhood where they happened to be shooting. Right. So they just threw a camera on a dude's shoulder and then told uh, uh, John Amplis uh, to walk through the street and then they would shoot him. So while there's footage of basically a celebration and Martin out in the daytime walking amongst all these people and everyone's laughing and smiling. They're playing a voiceover of him talking to like the coast to coast AM guy sort of explaining where he's at spiritually at this point in his life and losing this woman and, and how he's sort of uh, coming to terms with that a little bit and sort of coming to terms with who he is and how he can't quite peg down who he is. But obviously Martin is having a bit of an identity crisis, which could point us to him making a change uh, mm-hmm. in who he is. Like if he's becoming self-aware of what he is and knows that there might be something wrong with it, that could be the launching ground for him to maybe seek help and get better, which is what we want for Martin. So then to then have that very abruptly taken away by having a stake driven through his heart, just like any vampire slayer would with any other vampire, then ultimately the question we've been asking the whole movie is Martin a vampire. Isn't he a vampire? It doesn't matter. He went out like a vampire. Like he may yeah. as well have just been a vampire the entire time. And really all of this self-reflection and, and potential growth for him as a per- as a person doesn't matter. Which yeah. is just like the ultimate fucking downer. Like it's a very it's a very George Romero, bleak, uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, we're going out on the fucking sourest of notes that I can I can think of. Sort of stamp, which yes. is a bit of his auteurship. He loves to do those in his movies, and I think was the the absolute perfect call for this story. Oh, a hundred percent. I I feel like this. It's so tricky when you're dealing with subject matter like this that's like pretty heavy and you're dealing with a character who may or may not be what they've seen and they've done heinous things and we've watched them do heinous things on scene, whether or not 
their mental state is what it is. Um, that like the movie can really only end one way and to do it any other way would be like a huge disservice to it. But right. I feel like in this day and age, sometimes people don't just don't for lack of a better term, just don't have the balls to do that. And, but Romero did, he's like, yes. this is how it's ending. This is how it has to end for this character. And it sucks. And it's a, a downer, huge downer of an ending, but like it has to end this way. Um, because there has to be, uh, 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 like they have to repent for the things they've done, even if there's that shade of like personal growth that's happening. And so it ended the way it needed to, and it's a huge gut punch and it's uh, the better movie for it. Like it, it, the movie walks a tightrope the entire time and it, it doesn't wipe out at all. Like it, mm-hmm. it maintains that through the final frame. And that's just so rare to do, to do like a character study, that's like tinged in like horror or monster movie and have it be like that satisfying. It's, it's really incredible. Like, like I said, um, it's like I said at the top, like what you had told me about this movie did nothing to like inflate my expectations or anything like that. I just was like, okay, I'm going to see the movie now. And, um, and it was, it was great. It was even better than I probably could have thought. So, (laughs) so glad to hear that. Um, yeah. And it's funny too, right? Because like there's even a shade of gray, in the end of the movie, because Martin is a a, a, a scary psychopath, uh, a multiple murderer. Um, seeing him get stopped in most other monster movies, as you would have put it, would have the audience cheering. Like, right. they, like in any other movie that we didn't follow Martin around and build his character, Kuda putting the stake through his heart is just like Van Helsing killing Dracula. And people mm-hmm. would be like, ah, oh, yes, like he's finally dead. He got the monster. And the fact that they can frame this in a way that him stopping Martin is ultimately good. He's not going to kill anymore. But there is a twinge of of regret. There is a yeah. twinge of like that maybe could have turned out somewhat different and, and somewhat happier. And I'm a bit bummed that that crazy fucking killer is dead. And that's so intriguing and so unique yes absolutely it is one of the most unique vampire movies i think i've ever seen i've never seen one like it and i've never seen one since this movie's release (laughs) so um so yeah it's really one of a kind and so if you have the wherewithal you should absolutely check out this 4k from second sight um like absolutely get it blind buy it like like I would recommend it. I did it. I blind it's bought worth it. it. I hadn't seen it and it was I did not regret it and I'm probably going to watch it again in the very near future. Uh, you know, of course, once my two-watch stack uh, dwindles because right now it's pretty high and it's getting higher. So Just be warned if you don't have a 4K Blu-ray player, the, the Blu-ray of Martin from Second Sight is Region B. Oh, so thank you. Yes. You'll need yeah. to get a Region B player if, you, if you're going to get the Blu-ray. Yeah, but at this point, given just the cost of things, um, it's cheaper to get a 4K player than it is a Region B Blu-ray player, or yep. it's at least a comparable price. So I, I would just recommend getting the 4K player mm-hmm. uh, or a PS5 or Xbox Series X if you're into yep. video gaming. Like that's that's what I that's the way I that's what I did. It. Yeah, I got a PS5 so I can watch 4K Blu-rays. Yeah, I just have a 4K player because uh, <laughs> I have a Switch, but uh, it obviously doesn't play discs. So. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I hi- highly highly recommend. Um, um, so I mean, if you wanted to switch over, uh, speaking of uh, deplorable men, um, 
We're just diving right into that one, aren't uh, we? <laughs> what do you want to talk about John Carpenter's vampires? <laughs> Let's do it. No one knows vampires better than he does. My baby. But he met his match when he met the master who started it all. Jack Crow. He was a priest. It's the first known case of vampirism. The first and most powerful. You are the only one who faced Valak and survived. For 600 years, Valak has wanted to live in the daylight. A master vampire able to walk in the sun, unstoppable. Biggest nest of blood-drinking mothers the world has ever known. Time to kill some vampires. From the master of terror comes a new breed of evil. John Carpenter's Vampires. So yeah, John Carpenter's Vampires. Uh, what a, a, a quick clarification. John Carpenter isn't the deplorable man in this. I love John Carpenter um, like a father. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about James Woods. James Woods is a shitbag. But, um, yes. Before we get into it, I'll just really quickly run over the synopsis. It's not very long. When a team of slayers are almost wiped out by an ancient vampire, Jack Crow, played by James Woods, and Anthony Montoya, played by Daniel Baldwin, go on the hunt for vengeance with the help of a young woman, played by Cheryl Lee, who is psychically linked with the blood-sucking monster. Um, Ryan, was this a first-time watch for you? Or okay, No, I had seen this movie before. Um, I think when the first of the David Gordon Green Halloween movies come out... Um, when I was still writing for the playlist, we did like a Carpenter retrospective and it's, they were sort of repurposing like a, a best of John Carpenter article that they had done years ago, but they wanted to incorporate everything. So I caught up with some of my Carpenter blind spots, not all, but like a good amount of that, like nineties run. I had like, I watched in the mouth of madness for the first time. I watched mm-hmm. the remake of village of the damned, uh, ghosts of Mars. Um, maybe coming soon to, it's, it's on the list. Is it on the list? Yeah. Okay. Uh, a movie that I kind of think is fun, but we'll save that for when that episode uh, mm-hmm. happens. Um, and vampires. And when I first saw this movie, I was kind of just like, "Yeah, fuck this movie." Like, like it was probably my least favorite John Carpenter movie. And I still might think that on the rewatch, but I found much more to appreciate this time out uh, with the movie. Um, sure. Um. I liked the, I guess I'll say a couple like the things that I really liked about it. I mean, number one, John Carpenter has pretty much like insinuated all of his movies are a Western. He loves Westerns. And so vampires is like really the one true Western that he has made. Um, it looks it, it feels it. It's kind of got the attitude of it. Sounds uh, it. it sounds it. The score, his score is really good in the movie too, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, no surprise, but I think people, people are a little like, um, uh, like torn on his post like synth scores like which i think really started with they live that had that like sort of like oh, bluesy yeah. sort of score to it and then like most of his movies after that had that um had that sort of like element to it which i would i would say is true with vampires but it fits this movie though like yeah. it fits the tone of this movie and oh his synth score great. wouldn't make sense here no i think it would be totally do a disservice to the tone that he's going for in the movie um, so I think the score is really good. I think the movie looks great. Um, the effects in the movie are really fucking good. Uh, they're Robert Kurtzman and Greg Nicotero, mm-hmm. uh, you know, walking dead, fame. walking dead. Yeah. So like the, the vampire work is really, really good. Um, but there were, 
Well, I guess I have some other things to say, but I don't want to go on too long without getting your thoughts about the movie. Because I know, like you said, you love John Carpenter like like a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was a uh, this was the first time watch for you, right? It was a first time watch for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, got it. What did you except think for? So basically the scene at the very beginning when they go to the house in New Mexico and they start pulling the vampires out into the sun. Mm-hmm. I had seen that like 15 or 16 times just on like TNT in passing. Like that this movie played on TV all of the time back in the day. It was on a lot. Yes. Um, so I'd seen that. But then it's just one of those movies where I had just heard pretty much universally from everybody that like vampires sucks. And it's like the lesser if not the worst carpenter movie I, I i hear vampires and ghosts of mars mentioned in the same breath amongst people when they're talking about the lowest of the low for carpenter's movies um and it's just one of those things where like i love john carpenter so like it, to hear like oh yeah like you love this guy this is like a, a terrible entry that you're gonna absolutely hate i'm like i have no interest in ever seeing that like this i don't want to see my hero at their most embarrassing that's not gonna help <laughs> me at all so i actively avoided it until i was putting this list together and i was like if i'm ever gonna bite the bullet you know now's the time to do it in the context of this and <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> no no pun intended and I I ultimately do feel uh, justified in putting it in the bad position in today's category. However, it's not it's not completely without merit. It, it's there is shines of brilliance throughout here, um, mm-hmm. or at least some good ideas that start and maybe don't get all the way to fruition. It to me doesn't feel very much like a Carpenter movie, and I for me that a lot of that's going to come down to the editing. Oh, yeah. The editing in this movie, I'm going to put a, a large amount of the blame for the, how disjointed the narrative of this movie is on the editing, because there are some choices in here that are pretty atrocious, and, and we'll get into specific examples of, of that. Um, but then, other than that, it comes down to the performances, which is you know partially on the director to not get the performances out of the the actors that um, you know are, go- are going to help the movie. But I don't like James Woods uh, as a person or in this movie. I really don't like his character. Um, he seems to be trying to do a uh, Kurt Russell, Jack Burton sort of character, but Jack Burton is a lovable fuck up uh, who's overconfident and because of his overconfidence, he gets bit in the ass and he's sort of in a Bruce Campbell sort of situation where he's a, a lovable fool who by luck comes out on top. Which is funny because Bruce Campbell, apparently again, IMDb trivia, like take it with a grain of salt was considered to play Daniel Baldwin's role yes. in this at one point. So that's funny. You bring up Bruce Campbell. Well, and he'd, he'd been in Escape from L.A., so I think yes. that it was that partnership he wanted to move him over, but I can't remember exactly why um, he was unavailable to be well, part same of the movie. Well, uh, apparently it's interesting you bring up Jack Burton because Kurt Russell was also considered for uh, James Woods' role, but he was committed to doing something else. And I'm glad he brought that up because I have two... Like, this movie has two big flaws in it, and... One of them I will not put at Carpenter's feet, which I'll get into, but because we're in the performances, one of them it like has to come down a little bit, which is the at least two of the three lead performances. I 
Cheryl Lee Innocent. Um, I'm oh, sure. A Twin Peaks fan, as I've said many a times before. It's nice. I to think see the biggest thing is that she's not given much material to work with. She's not. No, she's basically almost kind of like given to be Laura Palmer, but just as a vampire of like this faded, doomed like trajectory that they're going to face. Damsel in distress. Damsel perpetually. in distress. Um, but she has much more agency in like Fire Walk with Me or even in the Twin Peaks series in the flashbacks we see plus she plays uh maddie her cousin um mm-hmm. in, in in as a doppelganger in that so no no she has as much more agency there um but she does the best she can with what she's working with but i i don't like woods or daniel baldwin in this movie and i do want to at least preface that sort of like it's just hard this day and age because just seemingly most people in the industry just fucking suck. And so that's just a <laughs> statement of fact that we have to sort of reckon with as we're talking about these movies. But in an attempt to separate the art from the artist, I by and large do like James Wood as a performer in most things I've seen him in, even though the dude is a real life piece of shit. Um, like Videodrome is one of my favorite movies of all time. We've talked about night moves on this podcast. Which mm-hmm. is great. In that movie is great. And Martin Scorsese's casino. Like he's, he's got a strong resume, but he's got a strong resume playing dirt bags. Dirt which balls. May, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's life imitating art. Play what you know. Vice yeah. versa, you know, but, uh, I feel like even if he wasn't a real life piece of shit, I still think he's all wrong for what this role asks for. I think it's a total mm-hmm. miscast. Like I, I tried to separate, even separating the art from the artist. I'm just like, no, 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 no. He's all wrong for this role. Like I, I, if I was this age in 1998 and saw this movie, I would have thought the exact same thing. I would have been like, no, 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 no. Like he's not a heroic type, which is why he took the role because he, I guess he's kind of notoriously a little bit of a pain in the ass to work with. Um, yeah, but it was something different than what he mm-hmm. had done. So he accepted the role. Um, and Carpenter let, like there were takes where like he would do the scene as Carpenter intended. And then he would do like his version of it. And sometimes Carpenter went with the version that he came up with. Um, which I mean, more power to him, I guess. But like the, the, the thing is the dialogue too, which also we should note Carpenter didn't write this script. No. Um, so I feel like that's another important key here in, because the dialogue is so comically machismo, but like if Kurt Russell or a Kurt Russell type would have played that role, he wouldn't have like, he wouldn't have done it with a wink that like dramatically undercuts it, but he would have done it in a way that makes it like palatable. And Kurt Russell has charisma where James Woods is like a used car salesman. So when he says it, you feel like he means like it. wholeheartedly believes it yes and it just it just doesn't work and no daniel baldwin's kind of the same way his baldwin at least gets an arc I'll, like i'll give credit where credit's due his character at least gets an arc has some growth um you know and so it's like the bummer is that their performances were great the ending is so bleak and potentially heartbreaking that it probably would have been like an earth-shattering like finale but because i didn't really give a crap about either of them if they had like, chemistry oh yeah. my god oh like it, it that's the thing the movie's frustrating because you're like what could have been had these characters actually had some chemistry but to ease off the gas a little bit the one thing i do want to acknowledge is a is a big issue with the movie and it's not john carpenter's or even woods or baldwin's fault at mm. this point um is apparently just before shooting the budget of this movie was slashed by two-thirds yeah and you can tell uh because the movie starts with a banger like that scene you talked about that scene where they're oh yeah 
they're tactical. Like they have this full team in their getup. You understand the world. They have these specialty weapons to be attacking these vampires. And they're very like matter of fact of like, okay, this is the plan. We're going to the plan. Um, and they attack those vampires and it's like, and it does set the stakes up because that's a full team against like four ish, like normal vampires, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And they had, a, it was hard for them to do that. Right. And then when you introduce this sort of like master vampire element and the team in the next, you know, he pulls uh, Carpenter pulls a Hitchcock and then they all get fucking wrecked. Wasted. Yeah. Hurt, like in horribly brutal fashion. Um, and all you're left with is James Wood and Dana Baldwin's character and Cheryl Lee, who's been bitten by this master mm-hmm. vampire and is basically being held as, as a, like a plot device. So she could see what's happening at any given time. Um, like that sets the stakes of like, Oh shit. Like these guys are so outmatched and outgunned. Like it really is like a Western, like they're on mm-hmm. the lamb and then they like, there's no way they could do this. And then there's not really a big sequence until the finale of the movie. Like it sort of just like lumbers along. Like it's just like, okay, well now it's, now it's night. We can see what the other vampire is doing, but there's no real attack. There's like one like little flash of an attack. And then it's like some others race from the grave and it just sort of like lumbers along that way until the finale, which of course like matches that intensity of that opening scene. But it's like all the money went to that first act of the third act of the movie and you have a whole mm. second act of just like road movie with banking on james woods and daniel baldwin's banter mm-hmm. and it's so frustrating and it sucks <laughs> it's, it's not good banter it's not good. well you know, especially because it's like it it's it's disjointed so like because we we get a um after um, so in, in that early scene where they go to a, a house in New Mexico, like you said, they're setting up the world and they're like, you think it's a vampire hive. And so we're like, OK, mm-hmm. so in this world, we understand that there are basically uh, uh, vampires are real, but they're low in number. And there's basically these exterminators that will go and and, and seek them out. And it reminded me a lot of um, uh, I Am Legend. Um where yeah. Neville would go around and he would break into houses, find vampires sleeping and stake them in the heart. And that was basically his role of during the daytime going around and staking vampires. And so it kind of had that same feel to it where it was grounded in our world and it, it made sense for this team to go out there and, and hunt them down. But then after that initial scene uh, and everybody gets killed and is brutal, there's some great like practical effects of them being torn apart and stuff. And it's, it's really fucking rad. Oh, it's um, so good. <laughs> <laughs> one of the folks that's in their team that gets killed is a priest. And so James Woods goes and talks to a cardinal um, and basically tells him, you know, this big master vampire guy, um, you know, killed my team. And one of the things that I fucking hated about the script is that they are keeping something like they refuse to tell James Woods something about like there's a plot mystery blocking. there's plot yeah. blocking up the wazoo in this movie <laughs> to to like extend the story to like give us a reason to stick around to find out more but it's just like why in the fuck would you do that like if it's literally like mm-hmm. end of the world type shit you got to stop this vampire like get that shit out of the like out in the open early and set the stakes high and now we have a ticking clock element and like because they don't mention it early we're we're like okay what is this mystery and when the mystery is revealed it's a shit reveal like oh it, yeah it's, it's, it's really bad um which I'll just say, uh, so 
the the master vampire was a Catholic priest, and uh, they were trying to perform, I guess, a reverse exorcism, which would like implant a demon inside of a body, but then kill the host. And so then the, the it's an undead person because the body is dead, but the soul inside is the soul of a demon. Mm-hmm. And so part of the ritual went through, and because of that, we ended up with a vampire. So this master vampire is the original vampire, which was accidentally created by the Catholic Church in like the 1800s or 1700s which like yeah leave it to the catholic church to fuck up but the <laughs> he he like the priests won't tell James Woods about this yes and so we don't know what he's the, the master vampire is searching for uh which I, I should actually just say what the master vampire's name is and so I don't have to say that uh, a million times um it is Valak uh, Played by Thomas Ian Nichols, I believe. Yeah, uh, Thomas Ian Griffith. Griffith, uh, sorry, Tom, that's that's a that's different. I think Thomas Ian Nichols <laughs> is the kid from American Pie, or one of the kids. Ooh, from American see, that Pie. would be some interesting casting. Yes, um, no, Thomas Ian Griffith, who's like a martial arts actor. So that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, way different. <laughs> Samsonite, I was way off. <laughs> <laughs> Which like the vampires in this movie have more of like. Um, an animalistic feel to them. It's almost like a 30 days of night where they, they, uh, they relish in tearing people apart and drinking their blood. Yeah. Um, and so we don't really get a sense of what he's doing until later on in the movie when we learn like, Oh, there's a, um, a, a big crucifix that was present at the, uh, at this exorcism that for some reason we didn't destroy. And we've just been hiding in this place near Mexico. Um, and if he finds this crucifix, then he can get a priest to complete the ritual. And then he'll be able to walk around in the sun, which is the plot of blade, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so that setup is a mystery, and then the payoff of finding out about this in the third act is is really fucking stupid because you strung us along for that when you should have just mentioned earlier. But he's driving around with uh, this new priest because the original priest as part of the team got killed in that mm-hmm. first attack. And so he becomes sort of our avatar where he needs to be filled in on the world. And so there's like exposition dumps. And this is where the impromptu lines from James Wood, James Woods really shines because it'll be like – Exposition, exposition, world building, world building, exposition. Hey, when we were fighting back there, did you get a hard on? Did you get a real mahogany? And it's just like, yeah, whoa. Um, talk about shifting gears. Like you were just talking about, like end of the world type stuff. And uh, there's vampires, and uh, they, they're not susceptible to garlic or crosses like you see in the movie. Hey, do you have a boner right now? Just uh, <laughs> and. That's the dialogue through the whole movie, where the yes. exposition, exposition, and then clearly line that James Wood just came up at the top of his head, which seems to be uh, violent or hypersexual for some reason, as if that's like a reflection on James Woods' character or something. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Allegedly. 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 <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's really, it's really, really jarring for, for la- like, it is. It's just like, wait, 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 where did this come from? It's like. Every time was like a slap in the face. It's, it's, like, it's whoa. It's it's so wild. And then, like, speaking of slap in the face, that's the other thing I didn't like is, like, you know, where, like, all this is happening and James Woods is finding this information. Meanwhile, Daniel Baldwin is in the hotel with Cheryl Lee. And, like, it's just really, like, she's tied up and, like, nude, Naked. which is, like, really, yeah. like, uncomfortable. And then, like, he... 
he slaps her around like a couple times, like one completely unprompted, mm-hmm. um, maybe even twice. And so it's just like, that made me like just deeply uncomfortable. And again, this just like, sort of like machismo that's like rampant in, in it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll grant that, you know, cause I know we're sort of jumping around, but I, I don't think either of us anticipate spending a ton of time on this movie is that his character at least gets an arc from the standpoint of like in there's, there's, attempt of a like an understanding or reconciliation between the two of them before there's like an incident um in which she bites him Mm -hmm. and so he covers it up and he's he's hit it the entire movie like he is he's not told james was his character that he's been bit um like he's got a bandage on it and he's like what had happened like she tried to jump off the roof which is true but he basically Mm -hmm. was like you know what's that on your arm oh i got i got a shard of glass as i was trying to to pull pull her back through but we know that's not the case and so you know as he's sort of docile and like slowly turning and also trying to do sort of the right thing while also falling for this person it's like there's at least some semblance of character growth there so it's like by the end i was like wasn't totally on this person's side and i still wasn't into the performance but i was like there's at least something here something could have shown through with a better performer or better chemistry, but there's at least something here. Well, and there is an opportunity for something pretty fucking great to happen where James Woods, his character is an asshole Mm -hmm. the entire fucking movie. And he doesn't necessarily need to grow, but there should have been growth between Daniel Baldwin's character and James Woods's character. And for Mm -hmm. some reason, for that ending scene where they've wiped out the vampires, spoiler, um, and uh, they're having a conversation, and, and <clears throat> um, by the end of the movie, Daniel Baldwin has been bit visibly on the neck. Like, he's not hiding that shit. Oh, and, right, yeah, because right before uh, the sort of saving right. the sequence where he... And, and that's one thing I did think it was cool. Like, I, I sorry, I don't want to interrupt. It's no, just no, go, go, go. Mainly so I don't forget is like he did this both times that he was sort of bit where he used like a hot item to like cauterize yeah. the wound. Like I did, I sort of liked, especially the second time he has his like gun, he fires it up in the air and he takes the hot barrel to his neck mm-hmm. and like cauterize. I was like, again, if this movie had been working for me more, I'd be like, that's a badass thing. On paper, that's pretty yeah. cool. Like, I gotta cauterize this wound, so I'm gonna fire a machine gun until my barrel's hot, and then cauterize it? That's, yeah, it, it's yeah. super badass, but again, it just it doesn't work as well as it could. Like you said, on this movie's a lot of on paper. On paper, there's a lot of elements that could be really cool, or really, like, shine through. Um, but I want to give it back to you. I know I, I spoke over you. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, well, I was going to say, so there, there's the, like the new priest that basically he becomes a vampire hunter by the end. And, and he has a great character growth. Honestly, he does. But, he kind of reminds me again. Sorry not to interrupt. No, no, go, he, go. he, it made me laugh at the end. Cause he's wearing like a vest and like his shirt sleeves rolled up. He kind of reminded me, he reminded me of Benjamin Bratt in demolition man. Mm. We're like, we're like, you know, he's sort of like, he grew up in that era, like with the Sandra Bullock's character on the jingles and all the like stuff and the super sanitized. But then when he like teams up with Stallone and Dennis Leary and like everybody at the end, he comes out like with his shirts all like rolled up like this. Mm-hmm. 
So I I kind of thought of that a little bit. He has chuckle. a similar arc where yeah. he, he's very much like by the book and by the book, I mean the Bible um, sort of priest. And then by the end, he's like wielding a shotgun and, and, and threatening to blow his own head off and shit. Like <laughs> the standoff towards the end is, is uh, pretty well done sequences. The it's third a bit stupid, is, but it's fine. The third act's a really well done like set piece. Like mm-hmm. Car- Carpenter constructs that scene like super duper well. Especially because they integrate that sort of aforementioned ticking clock element to it where they're like, we have 50 minutes until sundown. So, like, we got this window to pull as many of them out of this house with the winch as possible, which they Mm -hmm. set up at the beginning of the movie of, like, just so they they just... Which is pretty fucking cool, like, in terms of, like, a Slayer weapon. Yeah, like, all the stuff that... All the tactile elements of the movie, I think, are, like, really cool. That's the one thing where the on-paper actually meets the right. execution <laughs> and it's really well done <laughs> right well and, and when you have uh, uh kurtzman and nicotero in there being like oh. yeah cool we, we know how to do it like they it's shot well like mm-hmm. th- th- that first scene where you see like james woods shoot a vampire in the chest with a crossbow bolt and then they start using the winch and dragging them outside and they hit the sun and f- they flare up like the fire <laughs> shoots straight out of them yeah and it's like that is cool as fuck for like a vampire movie like that set piece is cool as shit it's unfortunate that they do it like a million times because eventually it's like diminishing returns by the time we're getting towards the end of the movie but um i wish they would have found more creative ways in order to use that effect but But it was still kind of badass each time they did it i'm like you know what i don't mind because it's it's still it's an effective weapon so i get it like as, as clearing a building out it works um but so I wanted to say that the that priest is a is a badass. But after they've wiped the vampires out and he's got his shotgun, he notices that Baldwin has been bit, mm-hmm. and he's basically like, "I'm going to shoot you in the fucking head." And James Woods gets in the way of the gun, and uh, tells the priest to like put it down. And he basically turns and says, "Like you know, rule number one: if your friend is bit." you do not let your friend live. Yes. Like, Which you is know, another weird thing. They got the rules like zombie land. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I know that that's an anachronistic comparison because this movie came out, uh, you know, 10 years before zombie land, but still like, it, yeah. And there was no acknowledgement of any rule book at any kind time. They just sort of like arbitrarily throw these rules out. I think they another. only pepper in like two rules throughout yeah. the thing. And it's just like, do you guys live by a code? Like, if they would have had the code at one point, like if they, during one of the exposition scenes when they're bringing the new priest on board, that would have been the perfect opportunity to be like, okay, you want to be a vampire hunter? Rule one, two, three. And then mm-hmm. you set it up and then later payoff is like, I know I told you rule number one is if your friend is bit, you kill him. But in this... Yeah. In this instance, we're not going to do it. And that's ultimately what he tells him is like, yeah, I understand that we should kill uh, uh, Lesser Baldwin here, but we're going to let him go because he's basically he's fallen in love um, with Cheryl Lee, Mm -hmm. um, which that's not even set up very well. And I think that might just be because the early on relationship was very creepy um, and abusive. And so then for them to like now he like loves her, even though she's been basically zombified for the last two days that they've spent together um, and in and out of consciousness. So like the characters are not set up well to be in the spot where they're at at this scene Um, because very early on after they escape the attack that kills most of the team, Daniel Baldwin and Cheryl Lee leave and go to a hotel and James, James, uh, I almost said James Brown, James Woods 
Um, he this goes. Would be a vastly different movie. I would James watch the Brown. shit out of that movie. <laughs> Say it loud. <laughs> um, he takes off to go talk to the cardinal and the priest, and so they are living two separate storylines for a good chunk of the movie. So you don't get character development of like. I don't like you, Daniel Baldwin, and we've never seen eye to eye. And, you know, you're, oh, well, you're reckless, James Woods, and that's why we don't see eye to eye. And then they converge to, towards the end to where they respect each other, and then the scene plays off. We don't really get that buildup of either of those characters, just like we don't get any reason why uh, Daniel Baldwin would be in love with Cheryl Lee because she hasn't been a character for the most of the screen time that she's been there. So now they're like, well, no, he loves her. So he wants to run off to Mexico and James Woods respects him. So he's going to give him a couple days head start before he starts hunting him. Well, that's yeah, that was his sort of deal because he saved James Woods from basically being burned at the stake by right. Malik and the rest of the vampires. And so his logic, I think his line was like, you know, you, you saved my life. Like the way I see it is, or you, you gave me two days, I owe you two days back. So you get a two-day head start to go wherever you want to go or need to go, but I'm sure as you're born, you. I'm going to come after you, I will find you, and I will kill you. Yes, yeah. So. yeah, he, he does a, a, a taken line. A little bit, yeah. Also an anachronistic comparison. Um, but, yeah, it's... But again, they stole like, it from vampires. Maybe. <laughs> maybe they did. Maybe so... But it's like that there's a cool again, this this like code, this sort of like brothers in arms, this sort of uh, like begrudging respect. Again, the I guess this is the buzzword when we're talking about this movie in particular on paper, on paper. <laughs> all of that is really, really great. But it just it doesn't come across in the final product, um, you know, which is which is a shame because it's like there's a lot of potential here. And John Carpenter is one of those people who could get it to that potential but it just uh I, I don't know for whatever reason it just doesn't work even though apparently carpenter had a blast making the movie which is good because the guy was like about had like one foot in the door out the door of the industry and he made a couple more movies after this so it, it at least gave him a new lease on working yeah so. some some you know shot in the arm but he he didn't stick around for too much longer no i mean what was it was it ghost of mars and the ward were the last two movies mm-hmm. he made um i've still never seen the ward um me neither. I, I can't bring myself to do whatever it's yeah. to be bad. But, uh, but yeah, it's 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 a frustrating movie. It's more frustrating than it is a straight up bad for all the reasons we've sort of like articulated because it's like it's got a great look and a great vibe to it and the effects are really great and it's got a great, uh, great foundation of a cool vampire movie. But it just, it doesn't quite get there. Um, and it's frustrating because you know this filmmaker can do it can do right. it uh, you know and so it's well it's and the the on paper thing i think is is really important to point out that the the like you said up top that john carpenter didn't write this but the, there are two credited writers one of them being john steakley uh who his only writing credit is vampires was and he the, the author of the book though because it was based on a book I think so. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was vampires with a dollar sign. And then yeah. uh, apparently he was quoted as saying that after the budget was cut, that originally the script had a bunch of the stuff that was supposed to be in the book. But then after the budget was cut, they trimmed out like everything. So yeah. then it, the adaptation, like it was not, it's not a very faithful adaptation. I haven't read the book, but apparently that's, that's the case. But the, the, the screenplay writer for the movie is uh, Don, Don Jacoby, who, 
is a frequent collaborator with Dan O'Bannon, who mm-hmm. I, I'm a, a big fan of, but had worked on uh, Life Force, which coming Hell to yeah. a, a good, bad, what <laughs> near you. Uh, uh, he wrote uh. Death Wish 3. Um, oh hell yeah <laughs> this guy's my guy <laughs> uh invaders from mars which i haven't seen but is definitely on my list and it's supposed it's to okay. be really wild it's um, okay <laughs> and he wrote arachnophobia which okay. I, I mean the, it's fairly middling i think with audiences but i really like arachnophobia and my wife refuses to watch it because she hates spiders um can't blame her <laughs> he wrote evolution uh which i know that there oh, are the uh, ivan reitman movie yeah I know there's some strong fans of Me. evolution. I'm so, a strong fan of evolution. <laughs> uh, but he also wrote Double Team. Uh, oh, with, with Van Damme Dennis, Dennis Rodman <laughs> and JCPD. Um, so a bit of a mixed bag. And I think that's what we end up here ultimately with vampires is a bit of a mixed bag. Like we've got talent there that's behind the camera that could have come together and made this work and there's even some talent on camera, but I like I think it's just misused or misappropriated, and ultimately it's it's just too much of a mess for me to come together and say like, yep, this is this is one that's worth a watch. Like this is totally a good time. Yeah, no, I I'm a hundred percent aligned there. Like it's it's not a movie I would watch again. I'm glad I did watch it again now, just because I had an appreciation for the things that are good about it but i don't foresee myself ever like revisiting this movie for really any reason um and it's yeah it's frustrating and um completely unrelated now i'm just now i just want to rewatch evolution now that you're bringing that up that's like a that's a huge blast from the past i remember (laughs) when i was a kid so i brought it's probably been like 12 maybe 11 or 12 somewhere in there my uncle got me a gift card i think for fry's electronics and I went there, and the two things I picked up were Evolution and the first season of The Simpsons. On TV. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a good good trip. Yeah, good that's a good day. <laughs> I'll have to fit. Did you say you have Evolution on an episode or or uh, we, or not? Because we got to fit it in I don't, somehow. I don't think I do, no. Okay, I'll work on getting it into it. Yeah, get it on somehow. the list. Because <laughs> I love that movie. It's probably a what, but I love it. <laughs> so. Well... Speaking of what's, I guess. Uh, yeah, related. <laughs> we should probably uh, dip into our what, uh, which is also a bit of a mixed bag. Vampire in Brooklyn. For centuries, they have roamed the earth. Fearsome creatures of the night. Endlessly seeking to satisfy an unyielding hunger. No! Now. The world's last vampire is about to encounter something infinitely more terrifying than himself. Brooklyn. Interesting. I've been stabbed and I've been hanged. Even broken on the rack once, but I've never been shot before. It kind of itches a little. Vampire in Brooklyn. I would love to have you for dinner. When a ship docks in Brooklyn with a crew of dead men, a vampire departs and begins the hunt for a half-woman, half-vampire to be his eternal wife. Um, that's basically it. 
uh yeah Ryan. there's some other stuff that happens in there too but yeah that's basically the, the sure i mean the, the story is. structure is just about a vampire trying to get with a chick uh yes who's there are characters in part there but vampire who's got like vampire lineage uh, yeah um, well speaking of blade it's sort of a blade situation of a, a we should have fit just blade in this episode somehow it's come up i think blades times. on the list somewhere else or one of the blades is good yeah because <laughs> yeah. the first blade is incredible rocks yeah. um i would even say i really like the second blade uh um, I, I like the second one too uh, Del Toro's sec- yeah. second one's got that post matrix sort of like uh, you know sort of thing going on yeah. but I, I i prefer the first one but i like the second one um, i like the uh the the predator mandibles that the they the new vampires got in the second one. I thought those were kind of cool. Those were cool. I, you know what? I haven't seen it since I was probably 15, but I even kind of liked blade Trinity when I saw it. I know that's contentious. Oh. I know people, I know people hate blade Trinity by and large, I, but I you're have, not a fan of Ryan Reynolds. Uh, well not now. Um, I think but that movie's got like the most Ryan Reynolds of Ryan Reynolds in it. Well, I've told you my story about that, right? Where like, there was a time where I'm like, man, like Ryan Reynolds, that dude, I love that guy. He just can't catch a break. And now it's like, it's like a monkey's paw. Like I, re- I regret, <laughs> I regret having made that wish. Um, so. you put, you put some like you know, bad, bad energy out in the air. And then now he's, he's everywhere. Now he's everywhere. And now he's like, got, what is that boost mobile or cricket mobile or whatever it is <laughs> to the point where like, I was looking at like the Marvel movies coming out. I was like, fuck Deadpool three. I was like, do I even want to at this point? I don't know. But I mean, now that he, now that they have complete access to the MCU to use as part of their parody, I will definitely watch it. Cause before yeah. they were working with the dregs of, uh, Fox, uh, what they were allowed to use. So I, uh, who am I kidding? Great. I'm probably going to watch it too. So I shouldn't it, even. Uh, I but, like Deadpool one and I enjoyed two I, for what it was. Like, I like some them. good moments. Yeah. I yeah. like them. Anyway, we should probably talk about vampire. Brooklyn. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm, I'm avoiding talking. <laughs> we're moving on from Chris's, uh, horror dad to, to my horror dad. Uh, RIP. Yes. <laughs> Wes Craven. Um, you know, which this was a blind spot for me. Um, as a i'm not a i'm almost a craving completist there's like a couple movies of his i haven't seen but vampire brooklyn was one of them and i was like i don't know how i hadn't seen this movie because i love Wes craven and i love eddie murphy but i've just heard over the years nothing but not great things about vampire Mm -hmm. brooklyn so i sort of much like you with vampires i sort of just put it off and uh uh they're both in there Wes Craven's and Eddie Murphy but um as as my friend Nick Laskin put on Letterbox or or he goes by the nomenclature Mattress Man on Letterbox uh the the sensibilities of Eddie Murphy and Wes Craven do not seem to complement each other seamlessly no and that's about the most accurate uh, description I've heard about Vampire in Brooklyn because it's mm-hmm. they're there but do they are they do they work together not really but it's kind of fascinating nonetheless um i mean i wouldn't even say that eddie murphy's sensibilities are in there coming from eddie murphy like his portrayal in this movie is played much straighter than i expected yeah well his portrayal of his primary character yes well yes we should probably know of maximilian the vampire yes of maximilian because there's there's a very this is a this came out the year before the remake of the nutty professor Mm mm-hmm but this was uh, well i mean 
I shouldn't even say the Nutty Professor was the apex of that because he was doing the same thing in Coming to America. He played multiple yep. characters in the, in Coming to America as well. So this is not a new thing for Eddie Murphy to be playing multiple things, multiple characters in a movie, which he does do here. Uh, he plays Maximilian, the the primary vampire, but he also plays a preacher, uh, which we'll get into, and he also plays an Italian American in whiteface who does a much more convincing accent than Chris Pratt did in the Super Mario <laughs> Brothers movie. God damn um, it! I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but <laughs> anywho, um, but like you're right in that, like Maximilian Eddie Murphy's character, who's got like a almost like a Cajun accent. I'm not, I'm trying, like I was trying to place He's supposed accent. to be a Caribbean vampire, but like, I could see it. Like it's, it's there. It kind of dips in and out from time mm-hmm. to time, but like, I, I see what he's trying to do. Um, and like you said in the plot, he's trying to find a, a woman, uh, who's played by Angela Bassett, who has this like, you know, vampiric, uh, lineage. Um, and it's so jarring because the whole thing with, uh, Angela Bassett, she just lost her mother and her mother like was like had like uh like mental problems i like took her own life and um like had all these things and so she's like sort of worried about this trauma being like passed down to her which you know if we're speaking with the auteur theory that's a very west craven staple about the yep. sins of our father and things being passed through to generations so that element is very much evident in the movie um so it was nice to see that um and i i think it plays well, mainly because Angela Bassett is boss and uh, she could do no wrong and she holds her own. But then when you get into especially the scenes with Maximilian, who Eddie Murphy is playing it straight, but there's so many other like comedic performances outside of him mm-hmm. that are interacting with him in a way that you're just like, what is happening? Yeah. In Why is this- Eddie Murphy playing straight and then everyone else around him is a Looney Tune? Yeah, it's it's so so bizarre. Like it, yeah, it's, it's really weird. It's so bizarre. Like you know, and it's weird too because the Eddie Murphy comedic sensibilities, even if it's not coming from Eddie Murphy, were almost the things that I sort of like drew to in a weird way. Like um, you know, because Maximilian shows up like a ship docks uh, mm-hmm. where like uh, which is fucking rad that's such a rad scene that's such a rad scene and then they go through the ship and they see like the dead bodies it's like there's such a good like horror Which is like straight out of bram stoker's uh dracula like it started yes. the exact same way of a, a ghost ship showing up them going mm-hmm. on there finding dead bodies and then there's a wolf on board that jumps off of the ship and that wolf is dracula like straight yes. up ripped off of the pages which I, for me i was just like Ooh, Wes Craven, like, directing a classical horror novel, really, for this movie. Yes. Set the it, mood for me. It's It's got such a, uh amazing atmosphere to it in that opening scene. But, like, you also have, like, but then you also have, like, uh the the like the longshoreman working there who's played mm-hmm. by john witherspoon yeah. who is my personal mvp of the movie like cracking wise being like mm, no like 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 noping out hard mm-hmm. in that like so it's like you have this weird gothic atmosphere that like craven is able to pull but then you have like other people cracking wise we were talking about this off mic it's even like extra weird with uh with the character of justice who's john witherspoon's i think nephew um in it, uh, who's played by Alan Payne, who essentially becomes Maximilian's Renfield. Like he's his, he's his assistant. He gives him the power to be able to do, even though his power is 
powerful but it also involves like decaying and looking like a total like ghoul like there's a scene where he's like washing the windshield of his car and his hand snaps onto like the windshield of the car like Mm -hmm. falls right off um and he's like doing bits as well and it's just it's so the tone of this movie is just so all over the freaking place that you're just like what happened how did this happen why did this happen um well, I mean, I guess maybe some, you did some research and I think we can probably compliment each other in the context, but like Eddie Murphy liked Wes Craven's work. So he did want him to make this movie, but it just seems like the, like the process was really like tumultuous to make it happen. Uh, yeah, pretty tumultuous. And that's one of the things that was really weird about researching this movie is that there's a lot of finger pointing but nothing definitive down like nope he like this person said that and then this had like the, the, everyone seems to share an opinion but nobody wants to come out right and be like nope we have it documented that this this guy was a dick and then this guy was the good guy as far as i was able to tell vampire in brooklyn started as a story written by charlie murphy which is what got Eddie Murphy sort of interested in the first place, but it wasn't written in screenplay format. It was more of a, more or less an idea of like make a black comedy in the styling of uh, uh, like Rudy Ray Moore uh, of uh, or like Blackula uh, of like a modern Blackula that takes place in uh, Brooklyn and stars my brother Eddie Murphy, who's a, a, a comedic genius, and so like on paper that got him really excited. But Eddie Murphy was a fan of the work of Wes Craven. And so then he took that idea to Wes, presented it. Wes liked the idea on paper. It got presented back to Paramount. And I think that's where it went wrong is that Paramount was like, well, we have some ideas that need to be rewritten. And Wes is like, well, I have some ideas that could be rewritten. And so it went through a couple of different iterations before they went back to Eddie Murphy and presented it. And I I guess pretty much immediately when they presented it to Eddie Murphy after doing the rewrites, he seemed entirely aloof and uninterested in being a part of the movie. But at that point it was more or less like moving forward. And we should also mention that Eddie Murphy at this point in his career had an uh, exclusivity deal going on with Paramount. And this movie was going to be the last movie as part of his contract to produce for Paramount before Moving on, he would eventually sign with Universal to do The Nutty Professor, and that seemed to sort of inform his attitude towards making this movie, is that maybe he wasn't passionate at one point, but then to see something that he wasn't passionate about that was written by his brother, then go through a bunch of rewrites and screenings and different ideas from all these Hollywood executives, and then find his way back to not being the original idea, and this being his last movie on their docket... Seems maybe he was totally okay with uh, fucking around a little bit. Um, Maybe being a thorn in the side for the studio. It's entirely possible um, because I'm glad you brought that up because as of the research that you've done and that I I looked into as well, like really the only concrete piece of evidence that is a statement of fact is that, yes, in fact, this was his last movie to be produced at Paramount. So every movie he made from 48 hours to this one, was done at Paramount. And mm-hmm. so this was his last movie. So it didn't really matter kind of how the movie 
did or performed, which is a shame because again, like, you know, the late Charlie Murphy, you know, uh, had the, the, the idea and it sounds like an interesting idea on paper. And they brought Wes Craven and this was like, you know, Wes Craven, Wes Craven had his career ups and downs for sure. But this was like, he was sort of in a weird period because this came out in 1995. So it came out sandwiched right in between new nightmare and scream. Mm -hmm. Um, new nightmare was a critical success. Like it was a well-regarded movie, but it didn't do that well financially, not compared to most of the nightmare on Elm street franchise. It was not a financial hit, but it was a critical hit. Um, and then scream of course would go on to do both. It was a massive, massive success, but he was sort of this in-between ground. And so he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do a project with Eddie Murphy. This sounds like an interesting idea. And then it just like somewhere along the line got sort of lost. And there's also been documented evidence that like Eddie Murphy in the height of his powers, like he's, he's older now. So he's definitely like wisened up. And he said that in interviews too, like, you know, whether it was his like SNL monologue when he hosted or, you know, interviews where he talked about like, like I grew up like, adoring eddie murphy like he like i loved everything eddie murphy for like Mm -hmm. a a good period of time and i I mean i still do but uh you know like eddie murphy raw which was like a formative stand-up for me there's a lot of shit in that that does not hold up super well um especially in regards to the lgbtq plus uh, community and he said as such he's like dude i was like in my 20s like and it was the 80s and like he's like i I would not make those jokes now. Like I would, like I, I regret it. I would not say those things, but at the time it's like, are you saying that people like, uh, learn and, and grow? It's a wild, it's a wild concept. I know, but I think it's a thing that might actually happen for some people. Um, but you know, you know, but it's like you experience fame, super huge fame, that early in your fame when you're that young, massive. Like he, he was, credited basically i remember watching the snl 40th anniversary special and there was like a big like tribute to eddie murphy like chris rock like introduced it basically how not eddie murphy basically saved the show because it was in like a changing of the guard period and that eddie murphy was there was one episode where he was the host while still being a primary cast member (laughs) like that's how popular he was and then of course 48 hours and trading places Beverly Hills cop. So it's like you, you experience that big of success early in your career and you're a young person. It's like, you're not a fully developed human yet. So of course you're going to take some of that into like to your head. And I mean, I even ex- if you are a fully developed human, I mean, I'll say it right now. I, I mean, I'm 33 years old. I'm, I'm like not fully developed, uh, at least mentally. Uh, but if I just overnight had millions of dollars deposited in my bank account, I would probably do some stupid, very irresponsible shit. Probably. Yes. Same. Same. So I'm not in my early 20s with that same situation. I would probably be dead. Like you knew me in my early 20s. I would very likely be dead if somebody gave me that amount of money and just freedom and fame. Um, I I, I plead the fifth. I have no comments. Um, I will not go on record. Um, Good. Yeah, I I talked to you about that. Please, uh, if anybody ever asks anything about me, plead the fifth. (laughs) Plead the fifth. However, um, I sent you this article that uh, Jesse Hassinger, Hassinger, hopefully pronounced it correctly, did a couple years ago for the AV Club about, like, the tumultuous relationship between Eddie Murphy and John Landis. Um, And it was basically, I think it was, uh, maybe it was written closer to when, 
the second coming to America came out, um, which was of course directed by Craig Brewer who worked with Eddie Murphy on Dolomite is my name. But, um, John Landis, of course, directed Coming to America, which is a great movie. One of Eddie Murphy's best movie, probably my second oh, yeah. favorite after Billy Hills Cop. But like Eddie Murphy pretty much called the shots on that movie. And John Landis, you know, for all of his faults as a human being, um, which I, I was going to like address too shortly, he's probably one of the biggest name directors that Eddie consistently worked with. Oh, yeah. You know, because obviously he had a career of making movies of his own, like the Blues Brothers and American Werewolf American in Werewolf. London. Yeah. You know, he had this like, you know, but obviously we don't need to rehash the, the Twilight Zone movie incident. Uh, but like, you know, John Landis and him were sort of butting heads and Eddie Murphy had to pretty much, you know, he he was hot headed, but he also had a sort of right in this way where he just like took John Landis aside on the making of the movie. He's like, look, dude, you're fucking unhirable. Like, I did you a favor by bringing you on to direct this movie, like, for me because of the work we did on Trading Places. So, like, he kind of put him in his place. But, like, Eddie Murphy had that much clout where he could tell a director of some kind of stature to be like, no, this is how we're going to do it. So, like, Well, and honestly, with him being an unhirable director, he had that kind of clout to be like, nope, I want to work with John Landis, and he could get it done. So it's, it's twofold. Yeah, absolutely. Because... Anybody else, I bet if anybody else at that time, after all that, was like, I want John Landis to direct that movie, they'd be like, no way. But Eddie Murphy no. says it. He's They're like, okay, like, who are we to tell you no? Like, yeah. go for it, you know. But, sorry, long-winded way to get to, like, I'm not surprised if there was some sort of butting heads with this. Because Eddie Murphy at that point was just had such a big ego that he could tell he could talk oh john landis no he could probably tell wes craven no also who had mm -hmm. a sort of like career up and downs in terms of what he did so i imagine that so so what we get is a final product that's a really weird hodgepodge of like of eddie murphy and some of other cast members doing shtick and a gothic vampire movie and then some of like wes craven's like dramatic touches that he could bring to a horror movie and it's well, his, like his well-crafted horror sequences like very much like this is this is wes oh yeah the gore the gore and like the the vampiric sequences are really really sleek they're really really well done um uh, but then you get eddie murphy <laughs> which it's it doesn't fit, but it's my favorite no. thing in the movie where uh, Angela Bassett goes to see a, a pastor that uh, a, about something and Maximilian had got to the pastor prior, mm. uh, mm -hmm. but he takes the form of him. And it's also Eddie Murphy playing this pastor in like, you know, in a, prosthetics, in a, fat, suit in a fat suit and prosthetics and all that. And, um, you know, he walks into the church and he immediately starts smoking. He's hot under the collar because of all the, the crucifixes that are in the church. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know what? It's a nice night. We're going to have a sermon out on the, the lawn. lawn. Everyone <laughs> do outside. Do it on the lawn. And they're like, okay, sure. Um, so he's up on like, he's like up on the balcony and like the choirs behind him and everybody else is on the lawn somewhere in Brooklyn. And he's like, uh, he's talking about how like, evil is good and evil is necessary. It's like his Gordon Gecko from uh, yep. uh, Wall Street speech, but he's like, evil is good. And he's and like, he turns the crowd around. They, like, everyone's cheering for him. Yeah. Like, like maybe so think of little Nicky. Oh, actually that this, 
it's actually a good precursor to, which is a movie i kind of actually like <laughs> i haven't seen it in years but i remember no, liking the movie pretty well but yeah it's it's a lot like that a little like where everyone starts to sort of like give into their deeper like uh impulses where he like but he's like talking to um you know he's like so and so he's like he went out He's like, he said he was going out to visit his mama, but he actually went and got himself a $2 hoe and his like wife's like slapping him for doing it. And, uh, it's like, you know, sometimes getting out there and getting out your $2, get going out and get a $2 hoe. Nothing wrong with that. Evil is good. And then he goes into a bit how like, he's like, ass is good too. He's like, none of you would be here if it wasn't for ass. And it's like, Which he's right. He is right. And he's got a point. And it's one of those things where I'm like, I know he's doing shtick and this doesn't fit any of the other like violent shit that we've witnessed up until this point, but it's making me laugh at the same time. It's like a weird, it's such a weird experience. Well, and it's weird because like when he's in these characters, like not only the preacher character, but like you said, like the Italian dude, um, he is then full on like nutty professor slapstick comedic yes. character doing it, but then when he's Maximilian the vampire, he's basically Dracula yep. who's who's doing uh, like sexual sort of seduction. He's playing it very very straight um, to the point where he has the ghoul that he's turned, and the ghoul is very like Looney Tunes, very slapstick. Um, his body is falling apart throughout the the course of the movie. He's like rotting slowly and losing body parts, and so he has like opportunities to do jokes and whatnot. But then he interacts with Eddie Murphy, and Eddie Murphy like shuts him down and plays the straight man. Yes, and it and it's just like why why are we not just clicking on all cylinders and making a dark comedy with a current era comedic genius? Like why right. have the comedic genius who is probably the selling point of this movie is probably not Wes Craven's name up on the marquee that's getting people in here. It's most likely going to be the premise of it being a vampire in Brooklyn starring Eddie Murphy and people are going to show up looking for a laugh riot and he is deathly serious and plays like a real villain in the whole yeah. movie. Well, and the other wild thing too is like you would think that based on like Eddie Murphy, you know, like I said, like we said, he plays that Italian character in the movie, and it sort of recalls his um his like that famous SNL sketch where like it's like a faux documentary where he mm-hmm. goes undercover in whiteface and like he goes to like the he goes to, like the grocery store and he like goes to buy he's like I'll I'll buy one newspaper please and uh, the guy's like no just take it just just go ahead and take it and he's like. He like, like turns the like cuts the camera. He's like, turns out when white people are in the company of another white person, they they give each other thing. Like there's like there's <laughs> always been like a like a sort of social uh, bent to like what Eddie Murphy did, does, mm-hmm. and Wes Craven is also no stranger to that because he did the People Under the Stairs, yes, nineteen ninety one, which also has like a sort of class and race structure baked into that narrative it's a little sloppy and a little like not subtle but that's also the strength of that movie and i actually really like the people under the stairs so it's like it's not new for wes craven either like he could pull something like that together and so the fact that they just so like just didn't like it's like a just trying to put the jigsaw puzzle piece in the wrong spot like it's just they're trying to make it fit and it does like you're like what is not hitting what is the disconnect here between them like because also the people under the stairs is funny too like Mm -hmm. i would go as far as to say that movie's more of a dark comedy than it is a horror movie and so it's like if you would applied that tone to this movie with eddie murphy 
slam dunk like absolute slam dunk but like it just seems like it seems weird of like what wes wants to do and what eddie wants to do is like just completely at odds with one another um which again makes for sort of a fascinating mess but it doesn't make for like a as entertaining a movie as as you know it could be at its core oh yeah yeah. Oh, and and j- just real, real quick aside before we move on with that idea, did you notice the cameo, uh, the the people under the stairs cameo? I must have missed it. No. Uh, uh, Wendy Roby is in the movie as the the woman that um, Eddie Murphy takes over her mind and makes her attack oh, people in the that's police right. station. You're right, and Wendy Roby's also a, a Twin Peaks alum uh, yes. as well. So we got. <laughs> we, we oh got shit! Oh, her. we tied together our last two. Um, <laughs> No, there's there well, there's several cameos in the movie that are Wes Craven uh, alums. Uh, Mitch Pelegi mm-hmm. uh, from Shocker is one of the punks, and so is uh, his partner is uh, uh, Ju Garcia, uh, who uh, he's uh, uh, what's his dick from uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, oh yeah, he's Rod. Rod from Rod. Rod. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, of course there are there's also uh, Zekis Moke who plays Doctor Zico, who's in uh, Serpent in the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Um, he shows up in this movie, so the, like Wes is getting all of his friends showing up, which is great, uh, and also very much Wes to to have um, sort of bleed over from his other movies. He likes meta elements in his movies, auteurship. Yes. Uh, so I just wanted to bring it up, but continuing on with that idea them not meshing or working together is sort of the finger pointing idea that I brought up earlier is that Mm -hmm. nobody can definitively say uh, who's at fault for what element. So like we brought up how um, Eddie Murphy is too serious and that uh, Wes Craven shoots some portions of it in horror, some portions of it are in comedy and it's all very, it doesn't mesh well. Like the tones are are all over the place and like, the way Eddie Murphy tells it is that he, you know, maybe tried to play it too serious, but then there are people who say that Wes directed him to be too serious. But then there are other people that say that Wes wanted it to be comedic and Wes himself uh, was somewhere in between where he was trying to be playful. But then in the middle of all of this is Eddie Murphy, like locking himself in his trailer for long stretches of time or not even showing up to set. So they would like get set to shoot a scene and then they would call Eddie Murphy and he'd be like, Oh, I'm at home, which is like a couple of hours away from set. And so then they would shoot what they could waiting for him to arrive or shoot with his body doubles. They shoot over the shoulder. Like, the the production of this movie seems like such hell. One, I'm surprised that it exists and didn't just get shut down. Yes. Uh, uh, two, I'm surprised that we got some pretty solid performances and even including Eddie Murphy, who, like, sure, his his role is very strange and you would expect it to be comedic, but, like, if he was to play a Victorian era, uh, like, Dracula-esque vampire that's what he played yeah i think it works like you know i i definitely think it works or i should backpedal it could have worked <laughs> in in a, a more like tonally consistent movie it, mm-hmm. his performance isn't bad i guess is so to speak it's just like right. you know the whole thing the whole thing is jarring so i'm not gonna pin that on him but it's like he can do it and we we've seen through things like dream girls and whatnot that it's like the, the dude can actually act or dolomite is my name mm-hmm. like he like i mean he, could, he always could act like you know we we tend to undercut 
comedic performances, but like dude can act and the dude can dramatically act too. It's just that it, it doesn't, it's just, just something, something, something is odd about him being straight where everything around him in most sequences are kind of silly until it becomes more like until Angela Bassett turns until he turned her which also comes way too fucking late in this movie we should like point out like the structure of this movie is weird too like the whole sort of like crux of the narrative should be that she gets turned into a vampire about halfway into the movie and has to sort of figure out either how to live or to break that curse but it's like I, I looked, I checked the time, what the time that, that she turns into a vampire. There's 20 minutes left in the movie by the time that happens. I was like, that needed to happen way sooner yep. in the movie. <laughs> and have that be the dramatic conflict instead of have that, like, a bunch of shtick. And then the thing that we knew was going to happen happens. And, but then it, like, has a really, like, breakneck sort of resolve to it, to where it's just like, this just isn't satisfying for anybody. Like, what is what is happening here? <laughs> but no, you're right. I think we're at the, we're kind of at the tail end of this conversation yeah. here. It's it's a it's a true oddity. Like, I, I'm glad you picked it for this, because it's like, it's a real, like, it, it's that, you know, we, we often on the show want to champion those little, like, the little movies that could mm-hmm. as a what, but I think the other things that we do like, or at least are interested to talk about are those sort of like directorial misfires, like that director who, you know, can pull through, you know, they can deliver. They're like a a really astute filmmaker. And then you get, you get a movie like this where you're just like, what the hell happened in like trans? Like, like this seemed like a great idea on paper. And I don't know what the hell happened in the process, but what we got was definitely a train wreck but i couldn't keep my eyes off of it like i was i was definitely engaged through the whole movie mainly because i was just trying to figure it out like what, <laughs> like what the creative process was in it but uh no this is a this is a true blue what in that realm so i'm i'm glad you picked it yeah this is the one where i mean as we said with with vampires i love john carpenter but I can't necessarily be like, yeah, you should, you know, if you have a spare time and, and you know, the interest, you should totally watch Vampires. I can't necessarily say that because I didn't enjoy it to the level where I would be able to say that, even if you are a fan of John Carpenter like I am. However, I think that Vampire Brooklyn's worth, were like worth a watch. I, I like it's intriguing enough that it's worth a watch. I think so. I think it's 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 an it's messy. It's very messy. It's very but messy. It, but it's but it is intriguing enough, and the fact that it's like, you know, I mean, like Wes had a huge like career, like huge horror career. Like he's such an influential filmmaker. But it's like, I feel like even few, like even like I love John Carpenter, like like you do. But like, I, John Carpenter didn't work with somebody like Eddie Murphy. Like like to to work with a superstar like that, yeah. even still in the height of their career. Um, is pretty impressive like in and of itself and then just also that like process of like you're like okay i see i see automatically where there were multiple drafts of this either from west either from eddie murphy either from charlie murphy either from paramount right that and they all in some way shape or form all kind of ended up in the movie <laughs> <laughs> well and also just like the 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 fact that it threaded the needle between you know uh new nightmare which like you said was a financial success to the mm-hmm. fans of the the nightmare series i think 
most people would say like the first nightmare and then probably new nightmare would be their favorites or, or dream warriors I would, say would dream probably warriors be tends second, to be pretty top on that list new nightmare yeah. would be high up there amongst the others which i mean probably isn't saying much because there's some pretty shit entries in there but like says you <laughs> I, oh boy uh that's, I mean, a, that's six, a whole nother episode six is bad i'll, I'll six is bad i will i will grant that six it's, is that, that's not dream bad. master that's dream no six is freddy's dead freddy's the dead. final night freddy's yeah, oh yeah is that the uh the map says we're fucked is that's that the, that one yeah that's yeah. the map says we're fucked one that's the one where there's the 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 amusement park with no kids and it has roseanne yes. Barr and tom arnold in a cameo yep yeah that's the one that one's yep, not that's good bad. that's bad um <laughs> but i i mean spotty at best but i i think most people would agree that that you know, uh, New Nightmare is a high point, and then yes. Scream in in 1996 is you know that was the resurgence, that was the rebirth of slashers, and you mm-hmm. know that series is still going today. There was just a new movie that was released, and we talked about it. Go give it a listen. Um, but it's so weird to thread that needle with this very strange little movie about a, a, a Caribbean based vampire played by a giant comedian at the time. Um, who's playing it straight. Like every element of this movie is so just weird and mind boggling. And the fact that it still somewhat even works as a movie, Hmm? I still can't even explain. I can't either. I think, I think it comes to the fact that like, it's sort of almost willed into existence by just the sheer virtue of Wes's talent as a horror comedy director and Eddie Murphy's talent. And also like, and and like again some of the supporting performances in the movie mm-hmm. as well and angela bassett i think is like really strong oh, in the yeah. movie she's she does the most she's the glue she's the glue because she, she holds she, this movie together she is saddled with like all of the dramatic elements of the movie and i think she sells the hell out of it um mm-hmm. and so she's she's absolutely the glue around this silly string that is <laughs> vampire in brooklyn so um so massive kudos there <laughs> But uh, uh, that's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got, too. I, I would say, <laughs> like, you know, I know we get into final thoughts, but maybe I'll just get into it. Like Martin, absolutely. hundred percent, like completely subverts the expectations of what you yep. would expect of a vampire movie. It's a top notch work from George A. Romero. Go check out that 4K from Second Sight. You will not regret it. Um, it is worth it. So do that. Uh, vampires from John Carpenter. Not. I wouldn't recommend watching it necessarily, but like if you're a carpenter completist, it's like it's not it's not totally miserable to sit through by any stretch. It's not the most miserable thing we've sat through no. on the show. Not not by a long shot. There's there's some merit uh in the movie, um, for sure. And then Vampire in Brooklyn is just like so baffling, but in a way that's like engaging and I would I would still recommend it for sure. And it's, Oh yeah. You know, I know it long for a long time. It had the reputation of being Wes Craven's like weakest movie, but I no, not, I'm going to, I'm going to squash that right now and say, no, my soul to take would have, would like, a, <laughs> would like a word. Cause Oh boy. I don't know if you've seen my soul to take, but I've not. Oh boy. It's rough. It's so, <laughs> so rough. Um, so no, no, Vampire in Brooklyn is not his worst movie. Not by a long shot, but yeah, that's about all I got there. No, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with everything you said. So I, I think uh, we're we're good to tease. What's what's coming up? What what do we have in the barrel? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you are a subscriber to our Patreon, you already know what's coming to our Patreon next week. So that's probably a hint to say, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you should subscribe to our Patreon because it's only a dollar and you get some excellent bonus content. But uh, next week, April 21st, will be a Patreon exclusive episode. Um, and we are we have an exclusive interview with director John Ward, um, who is a... a a professor of Chris and I's when we were in college, a mentor as well. Um, he directed a movie in 1999 called Lover's Lane, which is getting a Blu-ray release courtesy of Arrow Video that hits, I think, April 25th is when mm -hmm. that Blu-ray comes out. Yep. Um, so he, um, unfortunately, and maybe we'll find it out and you'll have to just subscribe to our Patreon to know. Um there, the special features on the disc do not feature any interviews or commentary with John, so you will not find this anywhere else. Um, so you have to subscribe to our Patreon to, to check it out. I'm very excited. Uh, I want to applaud you, Chris, because you've done a lot of work behind the scenes to make this happen. Um, so I'm very excited to present it to our listeners. Hey, I'd, I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> just like our patreon exactly uh, which if, if you follow us on instagram you'll know that that's my my been my patreon plug <laughs> <laughs> that robocop i'd buy that for a dollar so be sure to subscribe that will be patreon exclusive so uh you do not want to miss that especially if you're a fan of 80s and 90s slashers movies like chris and i are so you want to check that out for sure and then our next main feed episode will come to you on april 28th and we will be talking about live action Disney uh, remakes. Um, there, there are enough for a good, bad, and what. I mean, there's a lot for a bad. I'll, I'll be upfront <laughs> on that. But there's still a good and a what's. And uh, mainly we're doing this to coincide with the Disney Plus release of Peter Pan and Wendy, um, which is a movie that honestly I probably would have no interest in, but it is directed by David Lowry who did Ain't the Body Saints and The Green Knight and A Ghost Story and among many other movies. So um, I'm like, okay, you had my curiosity and now you have my attention. Mm -hmm. So um, so we you can look forward to that on April 28th. But in the meantime, you can find and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and any of your podcatcher of choice. And once again, you can subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the good bad. What? It's only a dollar. So we highly recommend it. Less than a cup of coffee. You can do it. You can follow <laughs> us on Instagram and Hive at the good bad what? Or you can email us at the good the bad the what at gmail.com. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and sound like you can find the show notes respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd at C underscore T H O M. You could also find me on Letterboxd at Ryan underscore Oliver. Thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with a Patreon exclusive with Lover's Lane director John Ward, and then back on the main feed on April 28th with Disney live action remakes. Mm -hmm.